scientists are like amateur auto mechanics. They didn't design the universe, they didn't build it, they don't know how it works, but they keep coming up with ideas about how they think it works, which they often have to abandon because they got it wrong. At the Big Bang, all of the energy in the universe was created, which can't happen. And later, inanimate matter came to life, which can't happen. Stephen Hawking said that science can't know what happened before the Big Bang, and he is so right. That's God, like the Bible says. I'm Paul, and this is CYKIAE. Factory. In World War II, the biggest factory ever was built by Ford to make the Consolidated Liberator B-24 bomber. The smart guys, until then, had had many different factories make parts for this large type of bomber and then shipped the manufactured parts to a factory that assembled them all into a plane. That wasn't good enough for Cast Iron Charlie, Charles Sorensen, the Ford production chief. He knew he could build these aircraft at one plant on a production line. And this was frankly an unbelievable call. The Liberator had 450,000 parts, weighed 16,330 kilograms. It was 21 metres long. It needed 360,000 rivets in 550 different sizes. Ford built a factory just to make these planes at Willow's Run. The factory was 915 metres long by 390 metres wide at its widest point. The factory's internal area was 0.33 hectares. Its floor area was bigger than the combined floor area of the Empire State Building. It took six months to build the plant. It was finished just three days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. By 1944, it was turning out a completed B-24 Liberator bomber every 24 hours, just like Carstein Charlie had promised. But that's not what today's CYKIA program is about. It's about the most complex factory on the planet that makes this one look tiny. Ford's Willow Run factory was nothing compared to Ford's legendary Rouge River factory, which was six times as wide, twice as long, and with a floor area four times bigger. But the most amazing factory in the world is the single human cell, the simple cell, as we call it, that you have in abundance. We didn't even know about cells until 1665, when scientist Robert Hooke did the opposite to Copernicus with a telescope and looked at the smallest things instead of the stars. He found these tiny things that he called cells, because through the microscope he was using, they reminded him of the tiny cells that monks inhabited in an abbey. Hooke introduced us to the world of staggering numbers. He calculated that a 2.5 square centimetre of cork 
would contain 1,259,712,000 of these tiny chambers. This was the first time in science that numbers this huge had been used, and it was certainly not going to be the last. With this idea of looking at the very small, a scarcely educated man, Antoni von Leeuwenhoek, proved yet again that education doesn't equal intelligence something we should all bear in mind. He lived in the town of Delft, still famous to this day for its marvellous China. No one still knows how, but with the primitive resources available to him in 1675, he achieved magnifications of up to 275 times. He was the first person to discover protozoa, microscopic animals. One of his friends was the famous Dutch painter, Jan Vermeer. It's hinted at, though, through his friendship with Antoni von Leeuwenhoek and possibly with the use of a camera obscura, which projected images onto a flat surface, that Leeuwenhoek may have invented that Vermeer suddenly developed mastery of light and perspective. After Vermeer's death, no such device was found among his possessions, but that comes as no surprise, since the executor of his estate was none other than Antoni van Leeuwenhoek, the most secretive lensmaker of his day. Bill Bryson, in his marvellous book A Short History of Nearly Everything, tells us that our normal body cells are on average 20 microns across. That's about two hundredths of a millimetre. We have about 30 trillion of them, and each cell is made up of 10 million million atoms. In a speech that Bill Bryson delivered to the Royal Society on the occasion of it celebrating its 350th anniversary, having been founded by our friend Robert Hooke, together with Christopher Wren, Bill Bryson had this to say. Atoms are mindless particles. They, after all, they don't know a thing. Yet somehow, for the length of your existence, these tiny devoted particles will engage in all the delicate cooperative efforts necessary to keep you humming, to make you you, to give you form and shape, and let you enjoy this, the rare and supremely agreeable condition known as life. Each cell in your body is devoted to one highly specialised function, for keeping you alive and well. Richard Dawkins, the world's leading or noisiest atheist, who admits that he knows nothing in any depth about the Bible in his book The Greatest Show on Earth, says of the simple cell, A cell is a versatile chemical factory capable of spewing out massive quantities of a wide variety of different substances, the choice being made by which enzyme is present. And how is that choice made? By which gene is turned on? Just as the cell is a vat filled with lots of chemicals, only a minority of which react with each other, so every cell nucleus contains the entire genome, but with only a minority of genes turned on. When a gene is turned on in, say, a cell of the pancreas, its sequence of code letters directly determines the sequence of amino acids in a protein, and the sequence of amino acids 
determines. Remember the image of the magnetic necklace, the shape into which the protein folds itself. And the shape into which the protein folds itself determines the precisely shaped sockets that marry up substances drifting around in the cell. Every cell, with very few exceptions, such as red blood corpuscles, which lack a nucleus, contains the genes for making all the enzymes. But in any one cell, only a few genes will be turned at any one time. In, say, thyroid cells, the genes that make the right enzymes for catalyzing the manufacture of thyroid hormone are turned on. And correspondingly, for all the different kinds of cells, finally, the chemical reaction that go on in a cell determine the way that cell is shaped and the way it behaves and the way it participates in origami-style interactions with other cells. Sydney scientists Geraint Lewis and Luke Barnes, in their book A Fortunate Universe, tell us even a single simple cell is a miracle of complexity. Every cell in your body, for example, has molecular machines for moving itself tagging and transporting molecules, processing food, defending against invaders, DNA duplication and repair, producing proteins and receiving and processing outside signals. On top of all that, this entire machine can tear itself in half and produce a complete working copy in about 20 minutes. A modern computer is pretty great, but it can't do that. At the beginning of this program, I talked about the incredible facilities that the Ford Corporation built at Willows Creek and Rouge River. Well, compared to what a simple single cell in the human body does, they're the equivalent to a kid selling lemonade from a lemonade stand on their front lawn. Going inside one of our cells for us would be an experience beyond terror. If you scaled the cell up, and unless you were really, really tiny, there's no other way you can go into one of your own cells so that the atoms in there, all 10 million millions of them, are increased to the size of a pea, the cell would be roughly 800 metres across. It would be held up by girders called cytoskeletons. Inside are millions of objects whizzing around like bullets. Each strand of DNA in one of your cells is, on average, attacked and ripped to shreds every 8.4 seconds. That's 10,000 times a day by chemicals and other agents. The cell library gives whatever information is needed to repair them by the repair workshops inside each and every one of your cells. If they're not repaired quickly, they'll die. There's no up or down in a cell. There's no gravity. There's no unused space. The food we eat and the oxygen we breathe in combines in our cells to generate electricity. A tiny 0.1 volts 
travelling across an infinitesimally short distance of nanometers. If you scale that up to travelling across a metre, it becomes 20 million volts, the same power that you'd get from an electrical storm. As I've already mentioned, inside the cells is a central library. It's surrounded by assembly plants and processing plants that rely on the central library for instructions. It has a repackaging and shipping centre that will take the various products of the cells and repackage them for external shipment. All of this is done by robot machines in the form of protein molecules. They typically involve 3,000 atoms in three-dimensional configuration. There are hundreds of thousands of special types that are specified and orchestrated to make all of this happen. There's an elaborate communication system inside your cells. They have elaborate quality control procedures to detect errors and they have repair centers to fix them. The proteins are spinning, pulsating and flying into each other a billion times a second. Enzymes, a type of protein, perform up to a thousand tasks a second. They build and rebuild molecules, taking pieces off some and adding pieces to others. Some enzymes check passing proteins. They chemically mark ones that can't be repaired. They're sent to the proteasome structure where they're stripped down. What is salvable is taken off for reuse. What isn't is scrapped. When cells aren't needed any longer, they die. And they're very decent about this. They dismantle themselves when it's their time. Most cells don't last more than a month. Our bodies are constantly renewing themselves. That means there probably isn't a part of you that is more than nine years old. See, the reason you feel like a kid inside is because, well, in a sense, you are. But against the optimistic belief that evolutionists have that for them there is going to be a new species, even better than humankind, the reality is that we and everything in the universe gets old, runs down and will die. That's called entropy. Let's stand back and have a look at what we've learned. Our bodies have 30 trillion cells. Each cell has 10 million million atoms, plus a whole lot of other stuff, but I'm trying to keep the numbers down here. Our friendly Sydney scientists, Geraint Lewis and Luke Barnes, in their book A Fortunate Universe, told us a whole lot of things about how remarkable cells are, and so did Richard Dawkins, the most vocal atheist. Lewis and Barnes talk about how science is trying to figure out how there's life. And no, science still has not got a clue about how something as irrational as non-living matter becoming Albert Einstein or Mozart can happen. In their book, they say that the study of the origin of life is a forensic science, like a detective gathering clues. Scientists are trying to piece together a microscopic event, but are four billion years late to the crime scene that is the size of the Earth and constantly moulded by water, wind, shifting tectonic plates, 
volcanoes, sunlight and the occasional catastrophic meteorite impact. The origin of life could be an extremely rare event, even given the right conditions. The process by which life forms could be so unlikely that it has only happened once in the galaxy or worse. This makes the scientists' job much harder as they may be looking for a singular set of circumstances which statistical fluke was responsible for life as we know it. So far, we don't know of any advanced life anywhere in the universe, and if we're being honest with ourselves, there just isn't any. So we're dealing with a one-off event here. Scientists are rational people. Who has seen God? Well, they forget about or ignore all those people that had a direct encounter with God in the Old Testament, and all of those people who saw Jesus. In a lecture at Cornell University in 1964, the famous physicist Richard Feynman defined the scientific method. He said, first you guess, and there was a ripple of laughter. Then you compute the consequences of your guesses. Then you compare those consequences with the evidence from observations and experiments. He went on to say, if your guess disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It does not make a difference how beautiful the guess is, how smart you are, who made the guess, or what his name is. It's wrong. Nothing that scientists have as their theories are ever provable. Remember Hawking's. A scientific theory is just a model of a universe, or a part of it. It exists only in our minds. And theory is only an intelligent guess that can never, I repeat, never, be proved conclusive no matter how many times the results agree with the theory. Because the next time you test it, it may give the result that contradicts your theory. If it is wrong just once, it is wrong. The chances of scientists being wrong when they are guessing at how humankind came into being on the planet is very large. So leaving aside God as something you usually can't see, although there is evidence from people who have seen God, science relies on showing that God doesn't exist by pointing to multiverses, other universes without number, some of which have life, they think, perhaps, maybe. Don't be put off by the fact that no one has seen one of these universes beyond number and can't prove that they exist. You just have to take the word of scientists that they do exist, might exist, could exist. Maybe they just had something bad to eat for dinner. Richard Feynman said, Science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Personally, the Bible is totally compelling proof that God exists, written by over 40 people over 2,000 years, all about the existence of God. Darwin's theory of evolution is just that, a theory. It was an idea he came up with in about 1837. No one knew anything about DNA and protein until the last few decades, until molecular scientists told us that major mutations invariably kill the host. Darwin's theory sounded good especially if you didn't want to believe in God. 
Not that even Darwin's theory disproves God. It starts with him. On their best case scenario, it starts with life, life that God created. But the thing about Darwin's theory is that it doesn't take account of complex animals, like the dolphin that needs a whole suite of hardware and software to make its echolocation work. So these cells and atoms, all beyond count, constantly renewing themselves, all unconscious of each other's existence at the atom level, all work together to have you walking and talking. Why? Surely the only reason is that they provide the home for our souls. And what we do with them, our souls, is something that God has left to us, our free will. Thanks for listening in to this program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. And I want to thank the ghostwriter without whom this program definitely would not have been possible, the Holy Spirit.